Well, let's jump right in. Father, we ask you in the name of the Lord Jesus, Father, for your eyes to just shine upon us. We ask for the light of your countenance to shine on us even now. We love the light of your face. We love the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we ask you, come and touch us now. Escort us, Holy Spirit, into more of what's on the Father's heart and the beauty of Jesus. And we thank you in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this is session six on our apostolic prayers. And we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 16, but notice the prayer goes all the, all the way to chapter 3, verse 5. So it's the last two verses of chapter 2 and the first five verses. It's so seven verses together. And in the midst of this, I'll just say real quick, we're going to reach back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 because it fits right in. It's pretty repetitive to part of the prayer here, so I'm going to slip that one in too. So really, you get two prayers for the price of one, in terms of the teaching at least, okay. Well, let's look at this. There's seven points that I want to highlight that Paul's praying in this seven-verse prayer, 2 Thessalonians 2. Let's just read it kind of briefly to get your mind around it, then we'll go back to the beginning and get some review and get some foundational understanding. But I want you to get the feel of the prayer first. May the Lord, who has loved us, the Lord who has given us everlasting consolation or comfort and good hope. He's done this by the grace of God. Here's prayer one. May he comfort your heart. Prayer number two. May he establish you in every good word and work. Number three. Now Paul says, hey, pray for me, but I'm praying this for you too. So it's the third prayer Paul's praying for them. But he slips in there. Hey, pray this for me also that the word of God would run swiftly and be glorified. Number four, that we would be delivered from wicked men. Verse three, the Lord is faithful who will establish you. And number five, guard you from the evil one, from his traps and his schemes, his tricks. Number Verse five, may he direct our hearts into the love of God. That's the sixth request and into the patience, or the word in many translations, the perseverance of Jesus. You want to get clear, he's talking about perseverance. Because when we think of patience, sometimes we reduce it to, you know, being patient if you're in a conversation or not, don't drive too fast or, you know, wait on something to happen. But perseverance is a, is a pretty uh, strong word. It's not quitting in the face of, of pressures and delays and opposition, et cetera. Just to remind you again, what we said last week is that the church at Thessalonica, Paul had only been there three weeks, three Sabbaths, he said. And a multitude of people responded because of the signs and wonders taking place. But the reason Paul left so quickly, because persecution was breaking out. So miracles and persecution were uh, being released, they were experiencing them at a, at a significant level. Paragraph C. Now we're going to take a moment of review. Because we're in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, it's important that we connect what Paul's praying here with what he prayed in chapter 1. 
Because in Paul's mind, there are no chapters. So this is his second prayer in 2 Thessalonians. So he's assuming that they're understanding the first prayer and that they're connecting the two prayers together. It's important to understand the context of Paul's prayer. If you remember last week, we we backed up to the very beginning of chapter 1. He was praying that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit so they would have perseverance in persecution. That's the overall context. If you lose that, you won't really catch the urgency of his prayers. Just from last week, the beginning of 2 Thessalonians, Paul was affirming. He was boasting to other churches. He said, boy, the the saints at Thessalonica, they are new believers, but they are standing strong in the midst of persecution. it's, It's amazing that being so young in the Lord, they are being so strong. But then his point is, that's proof that God is working in their midst. That's proof that they're the kind of people responding in the sort of way that's worthy of the kingdom. New believers with this kind of perseverance, he says, it's proof, it's manifest evidence that God is working in them and they're responding supernaturally by the power of God in a way worthy of the kingdom. Well, that's going to happen in the end time church. The unbelieving multitudes are going to see even new believers anointed by the grace of God to be strong, even in tremendous persecution, and it's going to arrest the attention of the earth. There's a people that God is empowering supernaturally to respond in a way worthy of the kingdom of God. But it's by the grace of God because the unbelievers will know there's no way. I know that guy. He couldn't stay steady. I know him too well through the years. It is Look at the word here, verse 5, manifest evidence. It's proof. The Spirit of God's working mightily in a weak person's life that they could stay that steady to respond in a way worthy of the kingdom. So Paul says, in that case, verse verse 11, therefore, we're praying for you always that you stay in this flow of the grace of God so you would fulfill the whole will of God for your life. That was last week. Paragraph D Because it's so important, I don't want to run past it. Paul said in verse 11 in C, and we're going down to paragraph D, he goes, therefore, we pray always. And the therefore is the key linking word. Because you're responding in a worthy way, we're praying that you're going to stay with it. Because look at your life, you're proof that the grace of God is strong enough to anoint weak people to stand steady. And that was new to all of them because a couple of months earlier, they didn't even know anything about Jesus. They had no idea there was such a thing as grace to stand in persecution in a way worthy of the kingdom. This will be a very important message in the days to come. It already is in parts of the world, but it's going to be globally before the Lord returns. It's a very, very important prayer for the end time church. Now, remember, we're in 2 Thessalonians, the second letter to the city of Thessalonica. Paul's saying, just remember, I I wrote you just uh, uh, just recently. We're in paragraph D. I sent Timothy to encourage you. 
because I left so quickly, only after three weeks I had to leave because the persecution was intensifying. And they were really after Paul, and then they were giving the, the new believers trouble because of Paul. And so just in the will of God, the Lord showed Paul to go. But they kept, the new believers were still bearing the persecution. He said, I sent Timothy right back to visit you. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2. So that no one would be shaken. No one would be offended. And so fearful they would be shaken from their steadfastness by the persecution. And the word here is affliction, but it's persecution. For you yourselves know. Now catch this. We said it last week, but it's, it's a remarkable. You were appointed to stand in the face of persecution for the glory of Jesus. Now what man, woman, what minister goes into a city, has a evangelistic outreach, and in three weeks, one of the main points that he makes is it's appointed to you to bear persecution. I mean, that's, that's the apostolic gospel, but it's not the modern gospel being preached. He laid the foundation in three weeks. I mean, there was no Christian heritage that they were not drawing on the faith of their grandparents and revivals in the past. They never heard of Jesus three weeks earlier. But Paul said, you're appointed to this glorious task of standing for Jesus against persecution, and you become a trophy of the grace of God. You become a living message of how beautiful and worthy he is to give your loyal love to. You're a message from heaven the way you're responding. Wow. He goes, verse 4, for in fact, we told you ahead of time, I mean in three weeks, that we'd suffer persecution, and we did. He goes, it didn't surprise you. We told you on the front end. Acts 14, we looked at this again last week, and then we're going to move, move on in just a moment. But I wanted you to get this clear in your understanding. Paul carried this message to all the cities that he went to. In Acts 14, he visited on the way, out, on the way back from a missionary to, uh, trip from Antioch, on his way back, he visited all these cities, and in each one of them, he strengthened the disciples. How did he strengthen them? Well, many ways, but the way he highlights here, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, Luke traveled with Paul. He says he strengthened the disciples by, in, by telling them again, they must, they must, they must, through persecution, tribulation, that's the same thing, Enter the kingdom of heaven. He strengthened them. Now, how do you strengthen people by telling them that? You, you would almost think you would scare them away and say, well, in that case, I'm not in. Jesus used this same kingdom logic in Matthew chapter, in, in the upper room discourse. You know, the, the Matthew, I mean, uh, John 13, 14, 15, 16, at the Last Supper, right before he went to the garden and then to the cross. And those four chapters in the upper room, yay, five chapters, he said on a number of occasions, he said, I told you beforehand you would have trouble so that when the trouble comes, you'll be prepared. You say, well, how does telling, he says that a number of times, by the way. 
I'll give you a couple verses that I don't have on the notes right here. John 13, verse 19. 14, verse 20, 29. 16, verse 1 to 4. And then 16, verse 33. Meaning, over and over at the Last Supper, he said, I'm telling you trouble's coming. But he makes the point, I told you beforehand. Because they're thinking, we don't have that much trouble. He goes, oh, you're, it's coming. They're going to kill me tomorrow. They still didn't get it. But then they're going to come kill you. And I'm telling you beforehand to prepare you. Again, if you say beforehand, you might scare them. What happens is it gives people a chance to reacclimate their expectations. If they have time to, to reform how they view the future, they say, okay, I'm not under pressure, but pressure's coming. Okay, let me think about it before the pressure starts. Jesus endured it. The apostles did. It's through history. It magnifies Jesus. The grace of God will be on me. Many others will be bearing it. Love will grow. Okay, okay. It's not just going to be a bed of roses. It's really going to get tough. We don't know who it's going to be tough against exactly at all. It's, we just know it's going to. Okay. So I'm changing the way I'm viewing my future. And we just acclimate slowly. We change our paradigm. And by doing that, we're adjusting our expectation little by little. And then when pressure breaks out a little here and there, we acclimate and we realign more to this true expectation of greater pressure but greater glory. And we see the wisdom of it. We think about it for a while before it happens. But then Jesus' point is, these four or five verses, I told you beforehand, because if I know it beforehand, that means I have power over it. And if I have power over it, and I love you, I'm with you. That means the trouble doesn't have the last word. I'm telling you beforehand because I have authority over it. I know it's coming, and I can cut it short, but I'm going to help you. That's this beforehand that Paul is saying to the uh, saints there in Thessalonica, but Jesus said it in the upper room as well. And we, it's the hour. Uh, again, we're pretty f a few steps behind on some of the church really bearing persecution. They have been for some decades. It's not the majority of the church, but it's we are, it's the hour where we need to start saying, we told you beforehand to readjust your expectations, to see the wisdom of it, to see his power over persecution, to see how it magnifies Jesus, to see how the power of God will be on you, to see how we're in it together to the end, to see the eternal rewards that come out of it. Okay, tell me some more about this. Well, I'm glad you asked me because I'm going to start saying this more and more and more. I appreciate you asking me. Okay, let's go on to Roman numeral two. No, we got to start speaking it, saying it, writing it, communicating it in these years ahead because it's game on. The pressure is escalating. You know, the new hate crime legislation is going to bring pressure to bear down on people initially economically, then prison sentences, but Jesus said at the end, they will kill you. They won't just take your money and penalize you economically. That's where it starts and shame you, you know, in public forums or imprison you. They will kill you before it's over. But I have power over all of it. And I'll give you a hundredfold, yea, a thousandfold of everything you lose. 
I'll give it right back to you beyond anything you could imagine, and you won't regret having been faithful in persecution. Okay, now we're going to our new our prayer here. So that was First Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul prayed this. He's in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's wanting them to interpret this next prayer, verse chapter 2, verse 16 to 3, 5, those seven prayers, in light of the prayers of chapter 1. It'll take you a few minutes to go, okay, the chapter 2 prayers are understood through the light of chapter 1, and the chapter 1 prayers are understood by the beginning of the chapter or the persecution, okay, because it's profoundly about being, not only, but about being faithful and being anointed in the place of pressure. Okay, let's go to Roman numeral 2. Paul prayed, the first two requests here, that God would comfort them and establish them. Comfort them and establish them. Now, he had just given an exhortation in chapter 2. You know, he gave the prayer of chapter 1. We just spent a few minutes talking about. Then he, chapter 2, read it on your own. The first 15 verses, I mean, surprises you. He goes, oh, by the way, he goes, it's critical that you know that before Jesus returns, he goes, I, you know this. I was there three weeks. I laid this out to you. Again, he told them about persecution, and he taught them about the end times in the first three weeks he was there. Paul has the most unique new believers class of anyone in history. But actually, it's, it's kind of fun, cute to say that. It's real, though. It's a bit of a rebuke that that's not in the believer, new believers classes in the earth today, mostly. That, well, that's Paul, well, come on. Look, that's the apostolic gospel. But here it is in chapter two, the verses one to 15, he's, he's saying, let me tell you this. Jesus is returning, it's called the day of the Lord. But before he returns, there's gonna be a great falling away. It's gonna be terrible. And the Antichrist is gonna appear on the world stage. And he's gonna have mighty signs and wonders and he's gonna have a spirit of deception and many will be captured by the deception. Verse 15, stand fast. Don't yield. Don't yield to what? To that end time scenario that he spent, actually it's verses three to 10 where he really locks into it. But then he gives some verses before and after. He's on the theme, Is like, Paul, you're talking about the Antichrist and false miracles and demonic power and deception and to a new church, really? Then he goes, stand fast, verse 15, Verse 16, now here's my prayer. The prayer is so that you stand fast in the midst of those pressures. Paul was, he wrote, you can't be sure, but many commentators and Bible teachers believe it to be true that Paul, at least he wrote like he, it seems like he thought he would see it in his life. Because he has a, new, a few phrases like, and we who are alive when the Lord comes. We who are, is that a poetic we? Or you think, really? You think you're gonna be here? You only missed it 2,000 years. But, and I'm just saying that for fun, but the problem with that, I'm just gonna give a 20-second little side trail, is that because Paul and the apostles, it seemed like they thought it would happen in their generation, I have heard this complete distorted statement for many, many years, Every generation thought they were the last. Absolutely not true. 
There's always that little group on some hilltop somewhere who thought they were the last generation, and probably every generation, but only one generation where the majority of the believers for a sustained period of time thought they might be the last generation. Only one generation ever did that. That was the first one, if in fact they did. But people have used that argument for years, saying every generation thinks they're the last, and people go, oh, I didn't know that, so they just dismiss it. No generation has universally, the whole body of Christ, for a sustained period of time, thought they were the last generation. Again, there's always some little group on a hilltop somewhere that thinks it, but it's one fraction of 1% of the body of Christ. Okay, off of that, back to the mainstream here. Okay. He says, verse 15, stand fast. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself, or in paragraph A, and God the Father, who has loved us, and it's some commentators go, who's he talking about, the Father loves us or the Son loves us? Both of them love us in the same love, in the same equal intensity. So it's true of both. It's surprising. I read in some commentators, and some are debating. It's the Jesus who, who Paul's talking about who loves them. It's the Father. The fountain of God's blessing is anchored in the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit, Spirit love us with all their heart and all of their strength. That's the basis of our confidence, that the Father loves us. And the next basis of our confidence, is paragraph C, is that he has given us an everlasting consolation. Now that's a, a kind of a, an unusual term, everlasting consolation. An eternal hope is what it's talking about. Proof. From the word of God, I mean the word of God, uh, de declaring is what I mean by proof, declaring by the spirit that we have eternal glory after this life. That's what it means by God has given us a remarkable amount of information about the eternal glory waiting us after our momentary life on this earth. The reason I want to emphasize that, well, it's in the prayer, so I need to emphasize, it's one of the phrases, but paragraph C, Paul emphasized the reality of eternal glory to strengthen the church in the face of persecution. Again, I, I don't want to harp on this because I, I, I have urgency, but it, it's, because I'm mentioning it repetitively, it seems like, okay, but... This is something that's for we really got to get a hold of. The apostolic gospel, the paradigm was we make choices in this life that have eternal consequences. The gospel of the modern gospel today is we mostly say yes to Jesus so that our temporal circumstances get blessed. We get more money, we get more friends, we get more health, and mostly we measure how successful we are and how the kingdom works by our temporal circumstances being blessed. If the money increases, the health increases, the friends increase, the favor with people, hey, it's working. And the New Testament does talk about blessing on our temporal circumstances, but it's a fraction of the emphasis of the apostolic gospel. The emphasis is clearly we give up things. We deny ourselves. We bear persecution. We even die because we're making choices in this age that have eternal consequences, and that's the age we're choosing for. That is almost, it's, no, I'll say it this way, it's so foreign in the modern gospel. But until this is corrected and a paradigm shift 
is embraced, I mean by hundreds of millions of believers, they won't stand because their expectation is, I'm gonna get more money, gonna have more health, more energy, more friends, more comfort, and if it's not, God's a liar or the gospel's not true or that's what I signed up for and it's not happening, I'm out of here. And it's been a distorted gospel that's filled the earth and there's pockets of believers that are anchored in the apostolic gospel that's really sees decisions in this age, we make hard decisions, costly decisions, because we're positive it has eternal value. And we go, we'll do it, because there's only a minute here, and it's billions of years there. And that gospel, that, is, that was foundational to the preaching of Jesus, Peter, James, John, Paul, all of them preached that, but it's almost, you can't almost hear a whisper of it today. Matter of fact, when you say it, people think, well, that's a little bit weird. I'm not really into that. No, that's what the gospel is. That's what we're into. We got a moment and a half on the earth. Maybe it's 70 years. It's a minute and a half to make choices that have billions of years of consequence to them and the glory of God. And it's really, and why weak and broken people are anointed by the grace of God in our brokenness where we're we can make those choices in a sustained way. That's part of the message. So we love him with all of our heart, and he loves us with all of his heart, and we're in it together forever in love, and that's what this thing is about. Well, Paul says he loved us. That's our basis of confidence, and he's given us eternal consolation, eternal promises of glory. We're anchored in these. Jesus said here in Matthew 5, again, easy to quote. People quote it. About persecution, Matthew 5, verse 11, look at 12. Rejoice, exceedingly glad. Like, I loved it when Francis Chan came to our One Thing conference a few years back, and he taught on this. He goes, where are people jumping up and down when they're getting ridiculed for taking a stand? He goes, I can't see it. He goes, I want to get into this kind of understanding. I loved it. He's probably one of the few people I've ever heard talk about this. Well, now he gives the first prayer request. It's in verse 17, that God would comfort our heart. Now, the comfort is in view of the persecution, but not only persecution, because there's other troubles in life that aren't persecution. We have trials in life that aren't related because we love Jesus, it's because we live in a broken world with darkness and a real devil and real sin, and there's troubles in life. And all troubles are not persecution. That's, so you don't want to think that, well, you know, my house, things are going bad, and relationships aren't going great. And this, that's persecution. That's not the same as persecution. Persecution is when it's specifically the pressure comes because we're faithful to Jesus. We all got plenty of pressures, that are beyond persecution, and, it, it's, and God comforts us in those pressures, and that's real. But in this context, he's, he's really zeroing into comfort and persecution. Now, how does he comfort us in persecution? Number one, I don't have these on the notes, but he gives us the spirit of revelation. He lets us see more clearly how glorious the end result of the persecution is if we're faithful. All that revelation, when he gives it, or we call it living understanding. He gives us insight. Let's, insight's a simple word. Maybe he gives us dreams or visions. 
Maybe it just we're reading the word and just uh, we're just those moments of inspiration. Okay, thank you. You're comforting me. This makes sense. Some of you tonight in the last few minutes, you're just getting a spark of inspiration. That's a little comfort preparing you for persecution. That, okay, yeah, I can do this. If they can, I can. If the Lord's with me, yeah. That's called comfort. That's a little bit of comfort. Well, we get comfort because the spirit of glory, which is the peace of God. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.14, when you suffer persecution, the spirit of glory comes on you in a heightened way. And in a sense, the spirit of glory is that, that heightened sense of peace. It's like, this doesn't make sense. They're coming to hurt me. I'm calm. I'm strangely calm. Hey, is anybody awake in there? Trouble's coming. I feel the spirit of glory on me. First Peter 4.14. So he gives us revelation is one way or living understanding. The second way by the spirit of glory. The third way is we see other people not yielding to pressure. They're not caving in. We see that guy or that gal, and they're standing strong, and we go, wow. Like here in uh, two years ago when the Chinese, the 1,000 Chinese came in the convergence. In, our, in September 2018, they got up on the stage and, and one by one told how they lost everything, went to prison, were beaten, and they were loving and weeping, loving each other and weeping, over the joy of standing for the beauty of Jesus. And we were all kind of going, what? This is like real. I mean, we've read about it, but we've never actually met anybody who was beaten with a rod in prison, who's got tears of joy. When we see others, that comforts us. We go, okay, this thing's real. Another way is our mutual support of one another. It's not just that we look at that one guy and say, wow, what an inspiration. That together, the pressure is increasing, and we're standing in loyal support of each other. We're not yielding. We're not betraying. We're not caving in. Maybe the pressure hasn't hit us, but we know we're in it together. That's part of the comfort. Another part of the comfort is every now and then, God sends a miracle. He opens the prison doors. Many times he doesn't. Sometimes he does. We go, wow, did you hear those prison doors open? Or it's a miracle provision. You know, just out of nowhere, there's this tremendous economic blessing or a prison door open or a reversal of a court case where there's evil in the sentence against a righteous man or woman, and it's reversed. So those are just different ways he comforts those. I just listed four, five different ways where the comfort goes. I have no doubt there's others as well. Paragraph E, the second prayer request. In verse 17, he says, God will establish you. Then he goes on to say, in every good word and in every good work. Now, to establish you, this is a key prayer, a phrase that Paul uses. He uses it several times. He's used it earlier in 2 Thessalonians here and in 1 Thessalonians. This idea of being established. What that means in one sentence is to be empowered by the Spirit to be steadfast. That's what that means to be established. He goes, God, I'm praying that God will anoint you by the Spirit to touch your heart and mind so you'll have, be empowered to be steadfast. It will make sense and you will feel strength to not cave in. Before, when you were anticipating the trouble, you thought, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. But when you get there, all of a sudden, the Lord is, our spirit is being touched. He's buoyed up our spirit, so to speak, and we're 
It's called the spirit of glory. We're like, okay. I mean, it's not like I'm just overflowing with joy, but I'm not as freaked out as I thought I would be. <laughs> freaked out is the Greek for fearful. I'm not as fearful as I thought I would be. Well, Paul wants, when you read Paul's, his other letters, to be established or empowered to be steadfast, I have here paragraph E, in the face of persecution. That's the big context here. But also in the place, in the face of temptation. Also in the face of deception. That we're steadfast, we're not yielding because just verses before, he was talking about how Satan is going to anoint the Antichrist with lying miracles and all unrighteous deception and how even God is gonna release a spirit of delusion on people that have a hardness of heart. And he's saying here, but he'll establish you. He'll keep you even in this, free from yielding to the deception. He'll make you steadfast, I have written here, in your kingdom labors. And that may not sound like much, but uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, be steadfast in your labors, knowing, like in our kingdom labors, we're serving these two or three or four people or a little outreach. It's not that effective, and a lot of people don't really appreciate it, and it doesn't seem very powerful, and it's like, am I going to keep doing this? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, that because of the resurrection, stay steadfast in those difficult challenging ministry labors. Many ministry labors, though there's joy in obeying the Lord and touching people, the labors themselves can be long and difficult and challenging and the promises of provision and the promises of great power are delayed and even believers criticize you. You're like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. So Paul's even putting be steadfast, not just in persecution, not just in temptation, not just to avoid deception, but also in your kingdom labors. Just the day-to-day mundaneness of staying faithful in little tasks in the kingdom, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your ministry groups, when it's not that exciting and they're not appreciating it and it doesn't have that kind of wow dimension, he says, stay steadfast fast because your labor is not in vain in the Lord. He remembers every cup of cold water you give in the name of the Lord. Well, he says he'll establish you in every good work, word. Now, the good word means solid doctrine. He's talking about the the preaching of the word here. Because remember, he has just talked about 2 Thessalonians. We're here in chapter chapter 2, verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 9, the lying wonders of the Antichrist. Chapter 2, verse 10, all unrighteous deceptions going across the earth. Chapter 2, verse 11, there's a strong spirit of delusion being released. When he says that you are going to be steadfast in, the, in, a good, in every good word, you're steady on the doctrine. You're not pulled off course. You're steady on the truth. But not only that, you're steady in every good work. Now, this good work I have in paragraph E, it, rely, it, it refers to our lifestyle, godly lifestyle, just the works of resisting sin and obeying God in our character. But it also is what I just mentioned, the small, often challenging kingdom labors, being steadfast in them. I already mentioned that. There's a natural tendency in our hearts to drift from steadfastness. <laughs> 
Peter talked about beware lest you fall from your steadfastness. It's the most natural thing in the human heart to go hard after something for a while and after it doesn't seem as exciting or the breakthrough doesn't come as soon as we thought or I thought it would be, there'd be more excitement in it and it's, it's not, huh? That people draw back from their steadfastness. I've watched it for over 40 years of ministry. Many people on fire, five or 10 years and then they just, I just, they don't stay with it. And it's really not that hard to stay with it. I'll tell you one of the keys to stay with it. Stay with people who are staying with it. So people think, what's the secret? I go, there's really no big secret. Open your Bible as close to a daily basis, and when you read it, talk to Jesus. Make it a conversation. Don't just make it Bible information. Make it a living conversation. Number two, hang out with people that are going hard after God. Even if you don't like the same music or, or sports team or politician, you don't have to like the same recreation, but you like their values. Hang in with them. Number three, when compromise comes in our hearts, call it what it is, repent of it, get rid of it, sign back up for the Lord, push to lead on it, take mercy, and jump right back in. And be involved in serving other people, bringing the message to others, even twos and threes. If you do those three, four things, the Spirit of God will protect you because Jesus is a far better leader than Satan is a deceiver. Jesus is a far better teacher than you are or I am a learner. He teaches way better than I learn. He says, you keep your Bible open and talk to me. You stay with people going hard after God. When you sin, you call it sin, and you push delete and sign back up with mercy and don't kind of coddle that sin for a little while. And number four, stay involved in bringing the, the, the message or the good works of the kingdom to other people, twos and threes, not a big deal. Stay actively giving to others, and I'll keep you. There's no mystery to it. I get asked all the time, what's the secret? I go, it's, it's so simple, everyone can do it. But I find one of the key things is people, they end up uh, drawing back from folks that are going hard after God. And and you get out of a circle of people going hard after God, it's really difficult to keep the fire going. So I just give you those couple one, two, three, fours. Okay, let's look at uh, paragraph F. Now we're going to digress for a moment because this word that's big in Paul's uh, theology, established. Second Thessalonians is where we're at now. Let's go back to First Thessalonians because he elaborates on what it means to be established. And so I'm slipping in this extra apostolic prayer into this teaching notes here because this is, he elaborates, he gives three points on what it means practically to be established in good word and good works. This is what it means practically. Three points, he elaborates in chapter, in 1 Thessalonians, so he's, he's imagining that they understand what he means by establishing. Because he goes, I, I taught you there and I gave it to you in the first letter I sent you. So let's, let's kind of uh, backtrack to 1 Thessalonians 1, just ever so brief, because he gives three prayer requests, which are actually all synonymous. They are all the same thing. He says the same thing three ways in essence. It's the same diamond, different facets. And it elaborates on what established means. So Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Verse 10, he goes, I'm praying exceedingly. There you go again. It's like, wow. He goes, I'm sticking with this one. 
that when I see you, I'll perfect what is lacking in your faith. Verse 12, I'm going to say, I'm going to add words. In other words, that God would make you to abound in love. Verse 13, in other words, those are my words, so he would establish your heart blameless where you're not living in conscious compromise. So the Lord perfecting that which is lacking in our faith, abounding in love, and having a blameless heart. He's not talking about at the end uh, when the Lord returns in the resurrection because of Jesus' gift of righteousness we are all have the free gift of righteousness. That is a powerful Pauline doctrine. Paul preaches that time and time again. We can't preach that enough. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But he's not talking about our legal standing here. He's talking about not our legal position, but our living condition is what he's talking about here. It says that you live blameless. And you do a study on blameless, even in the New Testament, it's mentioned a few times, where people... God's people that are living in the light that God has given them, they're committed to it. It doesn't mean they never stumble, but they're committed to it. They always sign back up to walk in the light they have. They're called blameless. Their lifestyle's blameless. They're not living in conscious compromise in any ongoing way. Doesn't mean they never stumble, but when they stumble, they call it what it is. They sign back up. They're living in conscious obedience and not conscious compromise. That's what blameless means in a practical way. And there's a handful of people in the New Testament and the Old as well that are described by the Bible, by the Lord, as living blameless. Not their legal position when they stand before God because of Jesus' death and resurrection and the free gift of salvation, but their living condition, the way they're responding to his leadership in this life is what it's talking about. So let's look at paragraph one. Paul prays. Oh, that I would come and perfect what is lacking. What he really means is that I'm, I want to come and minister by the Spirit to bring you to fullness, the fullness of blessing in every area of your life. And your thinking, your doctrine comes to full blessing, your character, your kingdom relationships, your ministry. I want to point out and help you with the deficiencies of your life. That's what he means to, be, to perfect that which is lacking in our faith. Perfect means to mature. To mature in the area of our deficiencies. That's what he's actually talking about here. Paul says, if I come and I can labor with you for a while, I can help you in the area of your deficiencies, in your understanding, in your dedication, in your unity as a spiritual family, your motivations, your resources, I can help you in the areas of your deficiencies. Well, let's say it another way. Paragraph two that you would abound in love. Well, we already looked at this from Philippians 1, verse 9. Paul prayed they would abound in love. I talk about the threefold love of God. They would grow in the revelation of God's love for them. They would grow in the impartation of their love for Jesus. They would grow in the overflow of love for one another. And so that's standard Pauline doctrine, abounding in love. And when you love one another, that means you've grown in love of God for you. You've understood it, and you love God more. Because you only love people more if you got those other two in place as well. Then verse three, uh, paragraph three, then he says, I'll establish your heart blameless. And here's this word blameless, your living condition, the way you're behaving, the way you're responding to his leadership in this life. Paul was very concerned about that. And we talked about that a little bit last week in 2 Thessalonians. He said, when he comes, he wants to be glorified in his people, meaning 
He wants a billion or two billion people on the earth that are living in unity with his leadership. When he comes, they're not going, oh, no, you came. I've got all these areas. Duh. I mean, they could... I mean, I'm not going to break down who's forgiven and who isn't and how far you go and all that. But people can have areas in their life that are not pleasing to the Lord. And the Lord comes and they're, and they're saved because of the grace of God. But they're ashamed of their lifestyle when he appears. They're going, oh, no, I got these two issues I refuse to repent of. And actually, John talks about it. I have it here. I talked about it last week. That there will be believers ashamed of their lifestyle when he comes in his glory, and they'll say, why? It was so worth it to be committed. What? Look at him. Look at all the believers that are glorifying him. Why? Now, they're not going to hell, and they're not drawing back to the back of the line to try to sneak into heaven unnoticed. That's not what he's talking about. They're ashamed of their lifestyle. They're going, why didn't I break my agreement with pornography? Why didn't I break my agreement with these other 10 things, whatever. I don't want to go through some big list. I knew better. I really did. And they will be ashamed, not of the Lord. They'll be ashamed of their lifestyle at the time of his coming. Because it will seem like, why didn't I get it together? I only had a few minutes on the earth. You get 70 years on the earth, 80 due to strength. That's a minute and a half in reality. It's just not worth it to go to the right and the left and go live in the ditches. Top of page three. So now we're going to the next prayer request. But interesting, verse one, Paul says, pray for us. He goes, not only am I praying for you, but I'm asking you to pray for me. And here's what I want you to pray. <clears throat> here's the third prayer request, that the word of God would run swiftly. And what that means in paragraph D, <clears throat> excuse me, is that the influence of the word of God, it's a poetic term. The word of God is not running. The word of God, it's through the words of God's people and the Holy Spirit touching those. The influence of the word is running fast through a city. It's a poetic term. Jesus promised in John 16, he goes, when the spirit comes, he'll release a supernatural conviction. I mean, he will when the word of God is presented to somebody, whether in song or one-on-one -on -one witness or testimony, when the spirit of conviction is moving, it will be like a supernatural arrow piercing the heart of the listener. It will pierce, it's a supernatural work. It is so powerful that when we've seen examples of this in history, it is as powerful as great healing miracles are, sometimes more powerful. When the spirit of conviction penetrates a of the heart even of a stubborn person, and it cuts them asunder, so to speak. Paragraph two. On the day of Pentecost. I mean, here's Peter. He was running in fear some weeks before, denying the Lord. Now he's standing up. He's a weak man. He's not, he doesn't have any great history of being a preacher. I mean, we don't have any of his messages, you know, in the Gospels. You know, he's just the 12 went out and, you know, talked about Jesus. But here's his first sermon. He stands up. They're cut to the heart. 3,000 people in Jerusalem, people who have up to this point in time did not accept Jesus when he was there six weeks earlier. They're cut to the heart. Like, why didn't you accept him earlier? Now, some of them are out of town. They're coming in for the day of Pentecost celebrations. But others are locals. 
And they didn't, they were not moved earlier, but they're moved now. Like, this is supernatural. 3,000. But not only were they cut to the heart and come to Jesus, this is the conviction of the Spirit on the heart. Look at verse 42. This is even the bigger miracle. They stayed with it. <laughs> I've seen a lot of people get on fire for six months, maybe a year or two, but they stayed with it, and the fear of God stayed on their heart. When it says fear, it means the fear of God. Awe was on their heart. That's the power of conviction. Well, that's the day of Pentecost. Go back up a few years. When Paul goes to Ephesus, that's modern-day Turkey, a city in modern-day ancient Ephesus would be in modern-day Turkey today. That's Asia, Asia Minor, verse 10. All in Asia. Paul's in Ephesus, in this city, preaching. It's the third largest city in the earth in that time, 2,000 years ago. The third largest city in the known world in, in that area because we don't have all the data on some of the faraway places outside of the Middle East. It says that all in Asia, they heard the word of God through Paul preaching. So he goes to this city that's got demon worship and demon idols and much of the commerce and the marketplace industry is built on idol worship and demon worship. He stands in powerful miracles and conviction and it says the word of God went rapidly, not just in Ephesus, all of Asia heard the word of God. Now that's power on the preaching of the word. The word of God, I love this word, it prevailed in Ephesus. Oh my goodness. Third largest city in the world, the New York City of today. Could you imagine if the spirit of God worked in a way where they would say the word of God prevailed in New York City? Like what does that look like? Well, paragraph C, when the word of God runs swiftly, the word of God is glorified. Well, obviously, when the written word of God, the spoken word is glorified, the living word, Jesus, is the one ultimately being glorified. That's the point. Paul didn't want just Bible teaching glorified. He wanted Jesus glorified in, in the preaching of the word. And, it, and, and don't think you have to be a preacher with a microphone. You may be a singer. It may be one-on-one -on -one discipleship making. It may be one-on-one -on -one witnessing. It may be in writing. It may be in media. There's so many ways to make the word go forth. Don't think of a building, a microphone, and a crowd. Don't think of that. There's so many things in technology and all the internet. There's so many ways the word of God's going to go forward. Paul says, I want it to go forward in the future like it did when I was with you. And in paragraph D, I have written there, he wrote earlier, he goes, when I was with you, there was power. That's why in Acts 17, it says large numbers came in. There was power. That's miracles. And he says, I was in the Holy Spirit. That's more than miracles. That means the spirit of conviction. When he was speaking, the power of God would fall on the people. That level of conviction is going to be common in the end time church. And it's, it's glorious. Paragraph E. I'll just say this briefly. You just look at this later if you want to. But I encourage people to be students of revival. I've been an eager student of revival since my early days. When I was 16, 17, 18, my youth group leader said, read missionary biographies and revivals. I thought, I never heard of these guys, you know. And, you know, I wanted to read the story of the guy who won the Super Bowl, you know. And they said, no, read these. So I began to read them because my youth leaders kind of made me, and I kind of got excited by them. I went, oh, my goodness, because when you study revivals, and there's so much literature today on it, you see how God works, how 
intensely powerful he has shown up in history at key times because those are just down payments for the end time revival. My favorites, I have some of them written there. David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley. That's the first great awakening. Most of you are aware of that in the mid-1700s, there was a great awakening that swept across the East Coast. Incredible. Not signs and wonders in terms of healings. Very little of that. The spirit of power on the proclamation. It's like they said the, spirit, the, the, the room would be filled with the awe of God. And hardened sinners would weep and cry out for mercy. Thousands would come to the Lord. It would town after town. When the Lord is visiting in a, a great awakening, that was the first uh, great awakening in America. Then the second great awakening, people like Charles Finney and the Cane Ridge revivals in Kentucky. 25,000, they would go to these, uh, the, these uh, uh, camp meetings in Kentucky. 25,000. I mean, they didn't have... Good facilities, apartments, hotels, coffee shops, bathrooms, running water, 25,000. They all gathered. The power of God would rest on them night after night for hours, and thousands were getting saved. Oh, I love paragraph F, the famous story of Jonathan Edwards. He preached one of the most controversial sermons in America's history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Very unpopular today, but it was very anointed in his day, and he was speaking the truth of the word of God. And uh, he would be in a candlelight because they didn't have electricity, right? Okay, you know, it's 1740. So they're in a building with a candlelight, and he would read his sermon, his notes. I mean, I got notes, but at least I look up, you know. He just would read them. And night after night, he preached the same sermon, like night after night, you know, if it's, don't broke, if it's not broke, don't fix it. He just kept preaching it all over the East Coast. And thousands of people, they said they'd be in their chairs, hanging on to the pews, screaming for mercy, Jesus, save me. They felt like they were falling into the flames of hell. I mean, the Lord anointed it with the conviction of sin and judgment. And, of course, the conviction of righteousness. That's, we'll look at that at another time. Finney, oh, the, if you've never read the biography of Charles Finney, Again, 1830s, 40s, 50s, incredible. I read it over and over when I was 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. I couldn't read it enough. And Finney would go into uh, places and he would preach and thousands of people would, I mean, come into town and, and they had never heard him before and thousands of people would come under the power of conviction. He puts in his biography, I don't know how this could be true, but it, it, it's just boldly in his autobiography. Uh, and it was a great revival in New York City in 1857. He claims there were 500,000 converts in a period of eight weeks. We're talking no microphones, no cars, no communication, transportation. How did the word get out? And just people would be walking to the meetings a half a mile away or, or maybe a, approaching the building where they're preaching. The power got it hit and they fall over the parking lot wailing and crying out for mercy. That's the spirit of conviction. That's the word of God runs swiftly. Because I've, I've, I've poured myself out in those early years on the histories of revival, when I pray that the word of God runs swiftly, I'm going, oh man, this is awesome. It's not a small thing, what God has done in history. The Wells revival, I mean a number of revivals. I'll page four. We would be delivered, 
Paul, while well, Paul's praying, he says that he, he goes, hey, you guys pray this for me. I'll pray for you too. We'd be delivered from wicked men. And that he would establish us. There's that establish and guard us from the traps and the schemes and the trickery of the evil one. Not just the devil's attacks, the frontal attacks where he torments and we take the name of Jesus, the way he tricks and entraps and is always trying to scheme and deceive. Now, Paul is not praying. I want you to get this real clear. He's not praying for the total removal of all wicked men. He's praying for there to be rescue that the wicked men would not steal the heart of the church. Yes, he wants wicked men to be stopped so some of the persecution eases up. But bigger than that, he doesn't want the wicked men to steal the confidence of the believers by their threats and their intimidations. Because he just got through saying, we're in chapter three right now of Thessalonians, he just got through saying in chapter one, he goes, God has called the wicked men because they magnify the glory of the gospel. When people are persecuted, they show forth the beauty of Jesus. So God has use of the wicked men. So he's not praying they would all be removed because in the end time scenario, the wicked men multiply. But the wicked men, his idea, he didn't want them to steal and intimidate the confidence and steadfastness of God's people. And of course, you do want the wicked, we always pray the wicked guys stop and our friends get delivered from the persecution, but sometimes they die. And sometimes they're delivered and sometimes we don't know. But we don't want our, our confidence and steadfastness stolen from them. Paragraph B. This is a... Uh, a promise that not everybody appreciates, but it's given by a mighty angel to Daniel talking about the end time church. And it had a temporary, a partial fulfillment in Antiochus Epiphanes in 175 BC for the Bible scholars and historians. There was a partial fulfillment in that, but there is an end time fulfillment of this major promise in Daniel chapter 11, this mighty angel standing in front of, uh, of Daniel. And he says, verse 32, the people that know God will do miracles. Whoa, okay, great exploits, okay. Greater works than these, sounding good. Verse 30, I'm skipping some really key phrases here. But then some of them will fall, and he means martyrdom. And some of them will be aided with a little help. Like, a little help? Yeah, a little help. One time, Peter's in prison, and the angel comes and opens the door. He gets out, Acts 12, but James gets killed. Well, why does Peter get out and James get killed? Then Peter gets killed in prison later. One time Paul's in prison, he sings, earthquake comes, the doors open. Whoa, this is amazing in Acts 16. Then the next time he sits in prison for two years, no miracles, no door, no angel that we know of, and the legal process brought him to Rome. Then another time, he gets killed in prison. Like, which is it? And the Lord says, I'll give some help. There'll be some incredible miracles of deliverance. Doors will open. Angels will appear. The ax is coming down, and suddenly the angel stops it. And the next time, the person dies. Well, which is it? The Lord says, always ask for the miracle, but trust my leadership and don't be offended because this will be the greatest number of martyrs in history. But it will lead to the greatest harvest, the greatest transformation of the end time church. But there will be miracles of deliverance, but not everybody is going to be. Well, who is and who isn't? 
Well, if you hear I'm in trouble, pray for the angel, okay? And I'll pray for the angel if you're in some difficult situation. And if it doesn't, we're not going to say, the Lord, where were you? We're going to say, we trust your leadership. We trust your leadership. But you did promise a little help. But verse 35, it says, but some of the people of understanding, they will be martyred. They won't be delivered. The angel won't open the door. But here's what it will do. It will refine them. The them isn't the guy that gets killed. The them is the believers witnessing it. They are emboldened and encouraged. They go, you know what? He or she, they stood strong. You know, I'm in it all the way too. It will refine many in the body of Christ with the examples of heroic dedication in the face of persecution. So when Paul prays to be delivered from wicked men, he's not saying they're all totally removed and everybody is set free. Because that, that accidentally becomes kind of the rhetoric I hear sometimes. Like, well, when God moves, it's all going to be. I go, no, he's going to make trophies of the grace of God, showing people under the glory of God, persevering with loyal love even unto death. Well, that's not a very American. Yeah, I know, but it's the apostolic gospel. It is the truth. Okay, so we come to the final two prayers. They're pretty straightforward. Paul prayed, Roman numeral 5. Direct our hearts into the love of God. There it is, that threefold love of God. We need the Holy Spirit to escort us, I call it, into the ocean of his love. The revelation of how God loves me. That's part one. The impartation of love back for him. That's two. The overflow of love for others. And we could go on and on. This, here in verse five, paragraph eight, when he says, direct our hearts into the love of God and the perseverance not, I mean, patience, yeah, but perseverance of Jesus. This, these two things are the height of the supernatural work of the Spirit in the human makeup. Love, growing in love. It's the most pleasurable, the most glorious, the wisest, the most rewarding, the most helpful to other people to be escorted into love. Oh, glorious. That's the height. But being empowered in perseverance is one of the most courageous, heroic ways to live in the face of loss, standing true because you love him. So there's perseverance, not quitting, that heroic virtue, and there's growing and being escorted to love, the most pleasurable, wonderful way to live. That's the height. Those are like the mountaintops of the transforming work of God in the church, and I'll call it the end-time church, so these two issues are very strategically brought together at the end of this prayer. Paragraph C, we're going to ask him to direct us into the patience of Christ. I have four ways we need perseverance. In the face of temptation, we endure temptation. The way we endure temptation, no! The temptation says, yes, no! There is an endurance, a persevering. Number two, there's perseverance in trials. This is not persecution. Life is hard. It's not working easy. But I'm not letting go of loving God. I'm not going to let, I'm going to draw back and say, well, that's how you're going to treat me. Forget you. And a lot of people do that. They're saying, no, this is hard. But I'm going to love you and I'm going to keep pressing in. Those are trials. Then there's persecution, perseverance of persecution. Jesus said, be exceedingly glad. Your reward, you can't imagine how well you're going to be paid for it. And then number four, I don't know which is the hardest. I kind of think four is, having not really had much of number three. 
I had verbal persecution. I've had a, a, a fair share of that, but not physical or financial because that persecution comes in all those ways. But four is staying with it over the years. 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, persevering when the promises are delayed, when the provision's delayed, when the breakthrough's delayed. I mean, Daniel, he goes into Babylon. Let's say he's 20. We don't know. He's a little bit younger than that probably. Now he's in his 80s. That's 60 years later. He wrote, as was my custom from my youth, three times a day I was in prayer before the Lord. 60 years. What? <laughs> Praying for Israel to be released from Babylon. Then they're finally released, but he's so old and he's in the government, he stays. He goes, I'll pray for you from here. <laughs> 60 years, three times a day. Moses, 40 years out in the wilderness. Then he goes to Egypt and leads Israel. Then another 40 years, two 40-year terms in the desert. We're talking 100-degree weather. We're talking about water's not great, food's not great, lots of things aren't great. What, the great deliverer of Israel, 40 years, 40 times two, like what? Isn't there a time where you say, you know what? I gave it a good 10-year run. I think I'm going to coast for a while. No. Hebrews 6, show the same diligence until the end. Do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and perseverance, they inherited the promises, the Daniels, the Josephs, the Moseses, all the different saints through history that persevered. They inherited the promises through faith, believing and persevering, not quitting. Amen and amen. Let's stand before the Lord. I know I kind of had to give you a rapid fire at the end there. I didn't mean to do that. But I like to get this stuff on the transcription, and we make the transcriptions available. There's always a certain percentage that are hungry to break it down more, and so I want to get it written for myself, too, and just looking at it and studying it and reviewing it and that kind of thing. So that's why I kind of do some of that rapid fire stuff at the end. Father, we come before you, and we say, what a glorious prayer. What a glorious prayer that you would comfort us, that you would strengthen us, that the word of God would run swiftly. You would deliver us from wicked men. They would not dominate our hearts. You would guard us from the evil one. You would lead us into the ocean of love and strengthen us into that heroic perseverance that will not quit. Lord, I just speak that over this beloved community right now. I just pray those seven prayers for my family, my friends. These are the things on your heart to pray for one another. Your love, your love Jesus. Oh, lead us into the ocean of your love. Lead us into that heroic perseverance that never quits no matter what. And your friendship. Some of you maybe are being lured by sluggishness right now. That means the promises you signed up for a couple years ago, I don't know. Sure, waiting a long time. That's what sluggishness is like. I want to call people to repent of sluggishness, to break your agreement with it. I'm going for the full breakthrough. I'm going for fullness. I don't care how long it takes. I'm going to go for all. All over the room. I'm asking the Holy Spirit of that you to re break your agreement with sluggishness, coasting, 
Because the promises, the provision is delayed. The difficulties are just continuing to be in front of you. That's where sluggishness comes out of.
manifest Right now. 